Hi, and welcome to Sniffing the Tin, a podcast from Sardine Digital Engagement, where we chat with event industry specialists, policymakers, and conference attendees on the future of events and conferencing. My name is Elisa, and I will be your host. Uh, today, we have a highly distinguished guest. Uh, we're so lucky to have him with us uh, to speak about how his theories around events continue throughout the pandemic and how they play a role within the recovery and future of events. We have Professor Joe Goldblatt with us. Welcome, Joe. Thank you, Elise. It's a great pleasure being with you. I'm going to give you a little bit of an introduction for those of those listeners who are not familiar with Joe Goldblatt yet, uh, although they should be, because according to John Wiley and Sons Publishers, he's the foremost authority in the world of events. Uh, he held the world's only professional chair in plant event studies for 10 years at Queen Margaret University in Edinburgh, Scotland. His first book was described by the president, Ronald Reagan's White House social secretary, as a gift from the master. He's the author of the first textbook in the field of events management that has been continuously published for 30 years. He's also the author, co-author, and editor of 37 books in the field of events management. During his career, he produced events featuring President Ronald Reagan, Barbara Bush, Oprah Winfrey, and even Donald Trump. He's a founding president of the International Special Events Society, now known as International Live Events Association, and was the developer of the original certified special events professional international qualification program. So, as you were writing the seventh edition of your world-renowned book, uh, Special Events, Creating and Sustaining a New World for Celebration, the event industry and the world economy were recovering from the last major crisis. <laughs> it doesn't even feel that long ago, uh, which was the banking crisis of 2008 and 2009. And in your preface in that book, you highlight uh, this quote, this wonderful quote from a BBC interview you had done uh, in 2009. And, and I'll quote here again. BBC television interviewed me at the height of the global banking crisis in 2009, and I asked if I thought Edinburgh's world-renowned festivals would suffer as a result of these severe economic challenges. I replied that while many other industries have indeed fallen into decline, the festivals and events would rise to unprecedented heights as human beings needed, wanted, and desired, perhaps now more than ever, the spiritual fulfillment they provide at a great value. I further stated that the banks may indeed crash into the earth, but the festivals will continue to rise higher and higher as they represent the aspirations of all of us for a better and happier world. As evidence of the enduring strength of the event industry, the Edinburgh Fence Fringe Festival Fringe sold more tickets in 2011 and set new records for both attendance and performer participation. So I'd like to have your take on this because I'd like to know whether you have that same feeling with the current crisis and whether we're going to come out of this and whether it's going to be a happier, better, lovelier world or whether there might be some differences this time. I remember standing on the Royal Mile where every summer we have dozens of buskers who perform as part of the Edinburgh Festival Fringe and the BBC reporter looking at me as the rain was pouring and asking, will it ever come back? And I said, it always comes back. It always comes back. After September the 11th, 2001, within a very short period of time, tourism returned to its former levels because escapism is always something that is part of human nature, human desire, and the demand for that never goes away. But the financial crisis of 2009, although it was a global shock, similar to what Nassim Tlaib describes in his book, Black Swan Theory, where you have a sudden shock 
and it's unprecedented, unexpected, and then either something good or something terrible happens as a result from it. Unlike that shock of 2009, what the global pandemic has brought with it is something quite troubling. It's called fear. It's called xenophobia, where we now have a fear of the other because we've closed our borders, worried about the transmission of disease and so on. However, the need to come together for a common purpose will always triumph over fear because human beings are by nature social. And therefore, what we must do as event professionals, as government, and others who recognize the importance of the global events industry, is we must now more effectively argue the benefits to public health, the benefits physical and mental in terms of public health, the benefits in terms of environmental sustainability, of social cohesion, and of course, education, of which you are a master in your firm of promoting education through live and online recorded events. And so I have high hopes for the future. Will it be the same as 2009? Not at all. Do we have the ability to increase the demand? Absolutely, because it's always been there. It always will be there. We just have to find new ways to communicate that message to potential audiences. That's a good way of starting off with a, uh, a message of, of hope in such a turbulent time. Talking about, you know, the changes and, and one of the columns in this book I found so highly interesting was that you put in the first column, it showed the reader the state of the event industry in 1989, the second column for 2012. Uh, so for example, event markets have gone from local to global. The technology has gone from elemental to complex. In the light of the recent developments uh, and the introduction of hybrid and virtual, although they existed back then in 2012, they have now come to the front and center. Can we add a third column for 2021 from that point onwards? I think we absolutely must include now a third column. So in the column that would be headlined 2020, in terms of event organizations, they're going to be much more consolidated. Many of the smaller firms will merge with larger firms. Many of the larger firms will become more specialized. In terms of event guests, they're going to be more time sensitive than ever before because more people are gonna be working from home. Therefore, they can participate in online conferences such as the successful ones that your company produces 24 seven. So in terms of when we deliver events, we have to be more time sensitive in terms of the programming. In terms of technology, one of the key aspects that's going to change and govern this is event security and privacy. Because with every development in technology, we seem to weaken the security barrier and people are still concerned about their personal security. In terms of event markets becoming globally accessible, I think actually they're going to be more segmented than ever before because of algorithms, the ability to customize content, et cetera, based on use. In terms of event education, you will see much greater demand for qualifications and experience, more important than ever before. When I was teaching full-time for 47 years in higher education, I would say to the students on the first day, if you have marks, grades that are at this level, 
you must have experience by the time you graduate that's at this level. And they would look at me and say, why? And I would say, because there will be thousands and thousands who have high marks, but very few who have the experience to translate those marks into something practical that an employer would see and would need for their business. So qualifications and experience are going to be more important than ever before. And that includes professional uh, certifications such as chartered event manager, etc. And then finally, in terms of event evaluation, I believe that the opportunity because of usage online with virtual events, hybrid events, will enable us to do more digital deep data mining about how people learn, what their interests are when they enroll in a course, what modules they repeat over and over again. And this digital deep data mining will allow us through event evaluation to almost perfectly customize the event, the next event, to suit the needs, wants, and desires of that user. So indeed, it is a generation of change and 2020 is gonna produce some of the biggest changes you've ever seen. We've already touched on that uh, a little bit here, but you've de described event organizers as music composers before. Uh, and now that I hear you say all of these things, it, it, event organization becomes even more complex and, and, and we have more hats. How do you feel uh, about that? So how has this significantly changed since you started and, and, and how is it, is it going to continue to change throughout the pandemic and once we're coming out of these lockdown restrictions? Well, when you think, Aliza, of a composer, you think of the person who writes the music, the person who writes the lyrics, someone who creates the framework for the story to tell the story. I think the composer is now going to be merged with the maestro. A good example of that is Leonard Bernstein, who wrote West Side Story and On the Town and other great musicals and classical music pieces such as Kaddish. The composer's tone, tempo, key will be elevated by the emotion, by the passion of the maestro. And so I think you're going to see a merger through online events, uh, the hybrid system of delivering events of composer and maestro, because at some time, the maestro will have to change the tempo. He or she might have to change the tone. They might have to change the key in order to effectively communicate with their event audience. A lot on the plate of the event organizer, even more so than ever before. One of the things that I was surprised to read in your book, because you write on so many digital transformations and how to use them, but you also say at some point, and it's quoted that the more things change, the more things remain the same. Uh, and that modern communications such as email and social media, and now we can probably add data and hybrid and all of these kind of things that are seen as more collisions rather than collaborations. And, and I just really wonder whether your opinion has changed in the light of the pandemic or the light of the technological advances that we have seen. Well, we certainly began with the invention of the internet and the development in the 1990s with collision. I'll never forget sitting in my home office back in 1993, and I had this dumb box in front of me with a brown screen <laughs> and some golden letters appearing. And 
it was really just typing back and forth. And then suddenly a message came and it was in Chinese. I had my first email from China. I ran into the lounge and I said to my wife, China's calling. That was a collision. I responded. We corresponded for some time, but it wasn't a full collaboration. I don't like the word coordination. So often in events, we talk about coordinating events. Mm -hmm. I believe the highest level, such as in Maslow's hierarchy of needs, where love is at the highest, at the pinnacle of the hierarchy of needs, I believe for events, the highest level is collaboration. Because now it gives us the opportunity long-term to stay connected with others that we are communicating with. So for example, a friend of mine who was the senior vice president of marketing for Microsoft Corporation once gave a lecture at Queen Margaret University when I was a professor there. And he began by saying to the students, you may be surprised that I'm not using PowerPoint today. And I looked over my shoulder and the students all nodded. They were surprised. He said, you know, PowerPoint is one of our biggest products, very important. But what's more important today is you and I, and nothing must come between you and I. He said, everything I'm sharing with you is on a PowerPoint slide deck, and I will send it to your professor to review later. Because he said, what you're going to experience today is what we call at Microsoft an event without end meaning that you start the event with a tease, a titillation online to arouse excitement, attention from the viewer, the participant. Then you invite them over several steps of online engagement to a face-to-face -face meeting that you hold in a ballroom, a conference center, or some other venue. And then the experience continues online as the person who attended the event segments themselves into special interest groups to continue chatting and having dialogue with people of similar interest. And so I believe that collaboration is going to lead to events without end as a result of all the benefits of technology that we're about to harness. That's exactly what we're trying to achieve as well, that community building, that pulling away those events from, from times and places and, and make sure that they can continue and live further, for potentially indefinitely. Some events translate better to virtual or, or to hybrid than others. For example, you know, a research conference, um, a market where we are pretty active in, translates quite well into that virtual space. But something like a wedding or um, a sports event does not as much. So what are your views on, on, on this and what do you feel like you're developing towards? Will, will weddings always remain a predominantly face-to-face -face affair or will, as technology advances, some digital elements, will they creep in as well? Well, I actually believe that all events will be more seamlessly navigated between face-to-face -face and online because I believe that online events are going to develop into full-scale productions 
like television spectaculars and major blockbuster films. So the basic teleconferencing that we're doing now will give way in very short order due to competition to a much more sophisticated online screen presence. And that'll include the audio presence as well, that the speakers will be a surround sound, that there will be sound effects, there will be a music bed, etc. All of this designed to further stimulate the emotions of the participant. So could you do this with a wedding? Well, of course you could. The Balmoral Hotel, when they were closed due to the lockdown, were thinking, how do we possibly have a wedding when the maximum number of people that can attend is 20? The average attendance at a wedding in Scotland is between 60 and 100, and some as many as 200. And then they got this great idea. What is a wedding? Well, it's a religious ceremony. It's a civil ceremony. It's emotional. Ah, it's a drama. And let's make it dramatic by creating a television studio in the ballroom and having big screens. And on those screens, we'll bring the other 100 people who wanted to attend, but due to COVID regulations were unable to attend, was very successful. And of course, using green screen, you can then put the bride and groom into various backdrops, such as Hawaii or Paris, or wherever they wish to be celebrating their special day. So I think any event, whether it be a wedding, bar, bat mitzvah, 50th wedding anniversary, corporate meeting will benefit from this use of online technology. I love that idea how they managed to incorporate um, some of those elements and make the best out of a tricky situation at that point. In your writings, you pay a lot of attention to the sustainability factor. And this was long long before even this was in fashion and, and all of the companies were, were talking about this, maybe also under influence from your son who has written about uh, sustainability and events as well. You even went as far um, as to say like, you know, we have to think if every event that we do, is this the right thing for future generations? And so as travel continues to be the biggest factor to, to carbon footprints of events and, and virtual and hybrid can eliminate a number of, of that or a large part of it. So how do you feel about virtual and hybrid from that sustainability perspective? What is the scope? What is the opportunities here for event organizers to consider? I'm very biased and I'll tell you why. When I was a boy of 12, my father decided to run for the city council. And I remember him giving me leaflets to hand out on the street. And the leaflets called for green-powered police vehicles. He wanted the police vehicles to be powered in those days with methane gas that was made from garbage, which was recycled. And so from the time I was 11, 12 years of age, I've always been interested in environmental sustainability. However, let's never forget that the tool we're using now, the computer, also creates a carbon footprint. And these huge server farms that are working 24 hours a day all over the world, every time we turn on a computer, it adds to the carbon footprint. So I think that good judgment is the key. The old mantra of reduce, reuse, recycle will be more important than ever before. But of those three, reduce will be most important. The first question any event planner should ask when they begin the idea of developing an event is in the research process, the research phase, 
they should ask, why do we need an event? Could this event be held more effectively through a memo, through an online message, through a letter? Do we really need to put people in airplanes, to put speakers in airplanes, to bring them together, etc.? Or are there alternatives that will reduce the impact and therefore reduce the carbon footprint? Reducing the negative impact doesn't mean that you can't increase the positive impact simultaneously. And so I think it's important that we consistently work to reduce the negative impacts with future events. One of the biggest challenges of our time dealing with the climate crisis and how we work with this. One of the other benefits that are often highlighted when talking about virtual and hybrid is the accessibility point of view. And this can be contested because for some people it is less accessible, but opening events to wider audiences or audiences who have experienced geopolitical barriers, financial restrictions, different abilities that don't allow them to travel. What is hybrid and virtual bringing to the table area? Is this bringing massive strides towards a more inclusive offering? And which events stand to benefit most, you feel, in this respect? I absolutely unequivocally believe that the internet is the great equalizer in terms of opening the doors to access. There is something called digital poverty, however, where folk who are in lower income stratas have less access or they may not have Wi-Fi signal that allows them because of their geographical location to access the internet and programs. That said, I believe that access is more unlimited online. And therefore, every live event should have a virtual component so that that event lives on the internet ad infinitum and can also be streamed simultaneously during the event so that you reach the largest number of people. I'll give you an example. I'm the treasurer of the Edinburgh Interfaith Association, and we surveyed our member faith communities to find out if during the lockdown, attendance at services, worship services, rose, stayed the same, or declined. Well, you know what happened. It rose significantly because people could now, in their pajamas, tune in to the sermon on Sunday morning while sipping a cup of coffee. And I believe that increased engagement online is going to lead to more increased engagement face-to-face when places of worship, theaters, and other venues reopen. I've had it described as people are going to be, we're not only going to organize hybrid events, but people are going to become hybrid consumers. So picking and choosing where they want to go and, and when to put the time in to travel somewhere. How do you feel? Does that ring like true to you? Absolutely. And because there will be so much product available, competition is going to be keen. And that's why I say everyone who is an event organizer is going to up their game. They're going to become the Hollywood producers of the 21st century online by adding special effects, green screen, music, better writing, better content by name writers, you know, by name authors than ever before. How do we start to create these more connective experiences virtually? And you just often spoke about in the book, for example, about the five senses. Can we replicate those digitally and create fully immersive experiences? And how do we need to think about those? How do we bring these to life? Well, that's a great question. Let me give you an example. I needed to order a satchel to carry my papers around the city. So I walked to the high street one day And I looked at a dozen different stores 
And the average price for a leather satchel that I wanted was about 50 pounds, but none of them had a leather strap. They all had a cloth strap and I really wanted 100% leather product. So I came back home and I did the naughty thing. I went online. I looked up Amazon and I typed in the search engine, leather satchel with leather strap under 50 pounds. And for eight pounds, I found the perfect leather bag. And I ordered it on a Saturday afternoon at 4 p.m. And Sunday morning at 9 a.m., ding dong, who's coming to my flat on a Sunday morning at 9 a.m.? I opened the door and there was my leather satchel. So if Amazon and other online delivery services who have really refined their services during the pandemic can deliver products in real time, why can't you deliver an event in a box so that the smell, taste, the texture of the event experience comes to you as you then experience the content online? So I think the fourth leg, if you will, in this future merger of experiences will be the delivery service who delivers straight to the consumer, straight to the audience member, the rest of the experience that they can enjoy during the event. I think there's some great threads being made in that, in that factor and incorporations being done with delivery when Uber Eats to get people oh. the lunch that they want. And, uh, and I love that. I, I do. Yeah. It is really great to, to connect with people in, in that form. You could set it up, Aliza, on a subscription basis. Every month, as you say, as people become loyal consumers of online events, every month on a certain day at a certain time, they would receive this experience in a box to complement what's happening online seeing where that's going to be in the future and, and what extra technology is going to come around the corner as well because i don't think we can even dream of what's going to be coming into the next coming years we can replicate five senses digitally it's going to be slightly different than we've known it before but it's doable so when we do these things like we were talking about hybrid events a little bit earlier where we have that set a uh, local like on-site component and you have some people who are um, watching digitally or from their own couch or, or home. How do we make the most out of the connection between both of those sites? So those who are there, those who are, are looking at it remotely, how do you make sure that they both feel that they are both an equally valuable trajectory? There might be different, but they're both equally valuable because I think we still have to convince a number of consumers about all of this. I think the key word is engagement. And how do you promote active engagement? By having polls online, by having discussion, by having assessment at the end of programs, by having feedback continually. One of the best examples of this is one of the most successful festivals that was ever created in the United States, which is the South by Southwest program in Austin, Texas, that has now been going for over 20 years. And when the pandemic reared its nasty head, they had to move to online. And they had an online platform, multi-channel, five different channels, so you could move back and forth from one speaker to the next. But they also had all of these engagement tools, whether it be chat rooms, segregated chat rooms, polls, etc., so that the person who was registered for this conference could customize their experience, but remain engaged at the pace that they wish throughout the entire program. So I think engagement is going to be 
king and queen. Well, that's why we put it in the title, basically. <laughs> Digital engagement. We find it one of the most important things, one of the, the hardest things to replicate as well for people at the moment. We are all about engagement. One of the things that a lot of people have done is obviously when in 2020, people had to scramble all of a sudden we had all these wonderful events planned physically and they were either cancelled, postponed, or some people pivoted to virtual. And people pivoted to virtual really quickly without thinking about the revenue models behind it. And there continues to be a lot of great free virtual events, and which is amazing. I make use of them on a regular basis. There's such great content out there for at a very little place or even for free. But what is the revenue model then? Because obviously organizing these events, it's not free. Like we have labor costs, we have product costs, we have cloud storage costs. There is a number of things that come to it. It's not just, you know, an event organizing is not just a catering. Where does it come from? Does it, is it going to come from delegates or is it going to come from sponsors in the future? What is your take on that? Well, there are two types of income. There's, of course, the traditional income, which is earned income. And that would be registration fees, sponsorships, etc., where you literally have to go out, use your graft to raise the money. For the event. The other type of income is the non-earned income, and that's grants, whether it be subsidies from government or from other organizations who simply want to brand the event in a way that promotes social justice or social development in some way. I think the future to pricing is flexibility. So for example, because of this disruption that we've had with the pandemic, when people register, they have to have the most flexible liberal cancellation policies. The more liberal the cancellation policy, the higher the registration numbers early on. So if you want to get people to register six months, a year out, allow them to cancel up to a week before you know the actual event without penalty. And you'll see more and more people giving you deposits. In addition to the traditional forms of earned income, another type of earned income will be similar to what you see in grocery stores when they charge for shelf placement or product placement. So for example, you event organizers might be able in the future instead of paying a speaker, to charge a speaker because you're giving them access to tens of thousands of folk who will purchase their book, who will follow up with them for consulting, etc. So product placement, shelf placement within the actual event itself. But you're going to have to be more creative than ever before. And the reality is at the end of the day, you must generate a profit or you don't have a business model. And so you must ask yourself, how can I generate the most efficient, effective profit on a long-term basis for this particular platform? And it will change. That's what I mean by flexibility. Some organizations, which are third sector, it won't be appropriate for a certain pricing model. Others, which are highly commercial, it'll be very appropriate. So you have to match the pricing model to the platform that you're using. It's harder at a, a research conference to do product placement than it is at private sector or corporate events. But from a consumer point of view, do you feel like at some point they will feel it is normal to charge for a virtual event? Or will they always see this as it should be free, but we might be able to spring a few quid here and there to, uh, towards it? Absolutely. Over time, consumers, when they see value, 
will be willing to invest. The problem is, as I mentioned earlier, so many event organizers who have made the transition to online are not offering any additional value. So the additional value might mean that they get a password which gives them access to additional content on an ongoing basis. They get a password that gives them access to Aliza as a consultant to advise them, etc. in the future. So it's not enough just to offer an online lecture or an online exhibition. You have to offer added value. And you must never reduce cost, never reduce cost, because that demonstrates that you don't have confidence in your product or service. Instead, raise the cost incrementally. And at each increase in cost, add additional value. That leads me to my next question, which would be, do we have a chance here to radically rethink and, and change the way we celebrate or organize events? Are these standards there for a reason? Because like you were saying just now, we have to give additional value. Look, co conferences or events can be a lot longer than they used to be, or they can give access to so many mul multiple things, to networking throughout the year, to, to consultancy, to all of these kind of things. Is there a chance here to completely do things differently, or should we adhere to some of the standards that we've always had? You have actually found what I call the crucible or the tipping point of where we are right now in the 21st century events industry. You and your colleagues are standing in the threshold of what could be the most profitable, most successful, most meaningful chapter in the history of postmodern events. And that simply means that standards always relate to values and values have to be supported by the public. So for example, we have increased support than ever before for environmental sustainability. That needs to be an absolute core purpose of every program that you offer. That needs to be highlighted in every program that you offer. And if you do that, then those who are thinking about whether they're going to come along with you will find what you're offering irresistible because it's about their survival, their children's survival, their quality of life, because you're promoting a greener, more sustainable outcome for all humankind, not just delivering a meeting or an event. And who wouldn't want that? <laughs> One of the things that we've been seeing, especially now, I think with the Euro 2020 as well, is that public perception that on-site events are currently dangerous. And that might stay for, for quite some time, especially cases are going up in the UK, although we're not going back to any forms of lockdown. How are we going to overcome that kind of public perception that anything that is on-site is bad. Uh, and I'm thinking predominantly here for, for us in a hybrid kind of, of field. I just wanted to have your take on that as somebody with so much expertise. I find it really interesting to see what you think. Well, let's go back to your original question about how is a pandemic different from a financial crisis in 2009? So we've had lots of financial crises before. Every few years, we have an economic recession. So there's lots of history to draw upon. It's not surprising. The pandemic was surprising because they usually occur about every century, every 100 years. So there wasn't a lot of information, especially in the 21st century when travel has so increased with the invention of the jet airplane, which means it's so easy to transmit these diseases. So to answer your question, I think the answer is, the same as it has been since the beginning of humankind or the development of the sciences. 
we have to produce the evidence. And the evidence can be produced with test events, micro events to show that people can assemble and be safe. We have to increase vaccination rates because we've seen that has been the tipping point with this pandemic. The more people that are vaccinated, the fewer people who are hospitalized and the fewer people who die. While the infections may increase due to social interaction, the level of being unwell has been reduced thanks to vaccination. And we have to use consistent and constant messaging that one can only experience so much from an online virtual world in order to really develop trust and to gain confidence in someone that you're going to invest in or hire to work with your company, etc. At some point, you have to walk through the doorway and either touch the elbow, give them a heart, give them a virtual hug, or one day give them a real cuddle and get to know that person over a drink, etc. It just cannot be done without that face-to-face -face reaction. And to make that a reality, we have to move from evidence, from test events, increased vaccination, and consistent messaging. And we hope we're going to be there soon and that there's not a fourth and a fifth and a sixth wave and a, a Zeta variant or anything like that. Obviously, you have worked in, in this industry for such a long time and you know all the ins and outs. So I really wanted to know who we should be watching in the next coming months. Are there any events that are coming out or going to be coming on this year in the next coming months, etc., that are just going to wow and blow our expectations? And just really for, for our listeners and, and for us here at Sardines as well, we really want to see where we should be looking for guidance. Well, there are two that I think of immediately. First is COP26 in Glasgow in November. My friend David Zolker, who produced the opening ceremonies of the Athens Olympic Games and also the Glasgow Commonwealth Games is producing all of the logistics for that event in Glasgow. And while that is an important event, it is increasingly important because it's the first time that 18,000 people will have come to this country to attend a public event since the pandemic started. And among those will be the 100 nations of the world who will hopefully agree on how they're going to mitigate the climate crisis. So I think that's an important one to study. The second one I mentioned earlier, and that's in March, that's the South by Southwest Conference, because this year it will be live face-to-face -face in Austin, Texas, as well as hybrid online simultaneously. So I think those two events will give you a very good indication of where we're going in the future in terms of events. I always end the podcast and the interview with the same question. And that is, what is your hope for the future of events? Uh, we've seen so much turmoil. We've also seen that it brings some silver linings. It has propelled the industry in a new, exciting direction. Uh, but what is the hope? Where do you, where do you want to go from here for yourself? Well, I hope as a result of this struggle that we will emerge triumphant because event organizers with great taste, talent, and tenacity like yourself will reimagine and reinvent the entire supply chain and the system to create more effective events that integrate technology and face-to-face -face 
And in so doing, they will show greater respect for our sustainable future. And as you do that, you may also find that the basics still remain as strong as ever before. Many years ago, when I was studying for my doctorate, my professor said to me, Joe, I'd like you to go speak to the experts in the field of events. Well, I thought he meant people <laughs> like your good self, Elisa. Go talk to Sardine's Digital Engagement. Talk to experts in this area. No. To my surprise, he wrote on a sheet of paper an address. And I drove to the address and found out it was a nursing home. It was a care home. And most of the people inside were 90 years and older. He had given me three questions to ask them, all about what events meant to them during their long lives, why they chose to celebrate, why they chose to come together. So I asked the questions, and I noticed that most of the patients were quite unwell. And there was one lady who was sitting in the front row in a wheelchair with a tray in front of her. And as I got ready to leave, I noticed she nodded her head rapidly from side to side disagreeing with everything I had asked. And I finally said, Madam, did you want to ask me something? She said, yes. She said, why do you call these things merely events? She snarled at me. Well, I said, well, that's what they are. You know, the word event comes from the Latin word A for out, venere for come, and event is an outcome. She said, these are not just events. I said, really, what are they? She slammed her hand on her tray and she said, these are the milestones of our lives. I said, milestones? What do you mean by milestone? And then she blinked back tears as she said, my daughter's wedding. You see, my husband had been diagnosed with cancer six months before. We didn't think he would make it to the wedding, but he did. He was in his wheelchair and he rolled down the aisle of the church holding my daughter's hand firmly in his and he died six weeks after her wedding. But he wanted to achieve that milestone. The day she said that he died and the neighbors brought food and comfort to my home. The day that I moved from that home to a smaller home. And then finally, when I moved here and again, friends and family came to make certain I was safe and comfortable. So of course, I followed up with a probe as any good scientist would do. And I said, Madam, why do you think these things are so important now? And I later learned that now for this woman was 98 years young. She said, these things are important because at our age, you cannot remember the last meal you've enjoyed, the last conversation that you had with a friend, but as you sit here day by day for the rest of your life, you remember these milestones. And I said, but yes, tell me why they are so important. She said, these milestones are the things that make our lives worth living. Whether it be online or whether it be face-to-face, -face, the same motivation will always be in place for talented event organizers like yourself to create something unique, rich, valuable that makes our life worth living. Perfect end to note. Um, and it gives us back an understanding of why we actually do the things we do. So that's given me a new lease of life almost. <laughs> the last thing that leaves me then is to thank you, Professor Joe Goldblatt, so much uh, for agreeing to come on the podcast and, and shine your light on what has been an incredibly uh, tumultuous time and give us some, some optimistic views for the future as well. And um, so again, 
Thank you very much. My great pleasure. And I have to say, Aliza, I do this quite a bit. I've never had anyone ask 10 more in-depth questions in advance. <laughs> <laughs>